Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. This next hour, we study the inspired and true Word of God and see the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. His light shines on us today from 1 Kings chapter 6. 480 years after the Israelites left Egypt, the temple was starting to be built. It was almost as if it's a groundbreaking ceremony that we see in today's world. And I love the details that the author gives us about the building of the temple. It shows that they just didn't throw this thing together, but they took it serious. Why? Because it is the place where God's presence would be and people would gather in his name. What does this mean for us today? We'll find out. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Thy Strong Word is generously underwritten by our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word, we have the joy of having with us Pastor Matthew Roosh of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church of Kingsford, Michigan. Pastor Roosh, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you so much, Pastor Finner, and what a joy to be with you, and great to talk with you. Absolutely. Pastor Pastor Roosh, this is our, well, we know each other, we've known each other for a number of years, but this is our first time together on Thy Strong Word, and you know what, we found this out that we've had new listeners all the time on Thy Strong Word who study God's Word with us, and I was going to ask if you could spend a few minutes introducing yourself and the work of the saints at Our Redeemer. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm a pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran in Kingsford, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, the great UP. I am a lifelong Uper. Well, I've lived in other places, but I was born and raised uh, right here, grew up in the congregation I'm currently serving, and have been back here for a little over three years. And that's been a wonderful joy and uh, experience to be in a place that's that's so familiar. Prior to that, I had done mission work for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on the island of Puerto Rico. So to go from a place where uh, it's as different as you can imagine, a completely different culture, to being in the culture that you grew up in, that's been a really neat experience and contrast. Um, I'm married to Heather, and we have three children, Isabella, Paul, and Sophia. And... um, we are blessed to serve a great congregation here in Kingsford that I'm sure, like so many of our other LCMS congregations, been trying to navigate its way through the pandemic of the past year. And thanks be to God, we've been able to continue to gather around Word and Sacrament, mostly uninterrupted. And the Lord has blessed our church. He's taken care of us. Uh, God has certainly been good to us in this difficult time. And we've been able to find uh, creative ways to reach out to our neighbors around us. Food distribution project uh, was a big one that we uh, undertook last year, getting groceries to people in our area who are financially impacted by the pandemic. Mm. And uh, is I'm sure many of the listeners have experienced times where even though you've gone through adversity, difficulty, you've seen how God has brought great blessings out of that situation and that's certainly been the case in our congregation yeah, absolutely and and i and i love how you talk about the blessings that we've had because as you and i were talking 
I spent 14 months not making a hospital visit. I just did recently, and and it's something where you can look at that and go, my goodness, how this, this nothing's going to work, or this what a what a horrible time. But at the same time, there's been other opportunities to connect with people and to give pastoral care and spiritual care. And as you said so well, I mean that's exciting that you've been able to reach the community that before that you're like, why are you giving me groceries? But during COVID, we realized, well, there's people who are in need, and boom, the Lord led you to be able to step up. So. I appreciate your perspective on the blessings during this time. Any other thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I, I really, the fact that that happened during the pandemic and continues to happen really shouldn't surprise us because it's just indicative of our whole Christian life. Uh, times we have of, of great blessing, times we have of, joy, of sorrow and grief, uh, but those things can exist side by side. You can have frustrations, struggles, difficulties, but we, though we grieve, and Paul says, we don't grieve as those with no hope. We have hope in the middle of our grief and our sorrow and our struggle. Um, And I think the pandemic perhaps has just highlighted that in new ways that we wouldn't have noticed before. I'm into that. I'm into that. I'm guessing that winter in Puerto Rico is a little different than the the upper peninsula of Michigan. Is that true? it is um, <laughs> a bit warmer, um, not quite that much snow in Puerto Rico, but I will take, um, for, you forgive me, uh, Pastor Finner and all your fellow Minnesotans, I will take UP winter and Puerto Rico winter over Minnesota winter <laughs> every single year. <laughs> and I say that having lived, having served in Minnesota North District for five years. Beautiful state, beautiful people. You guys can keep your winners, though. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've heard that many times, and we fully understand. So, anyways. <laughs> well, well, Pastor, as we look to God's Word this morning and look to our Lord, can you begin our time in prayer? Absolutely. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God who dwells with your people, the God who does not abandon them in their time of need, in their time of difficulty, in their time of struggle. You show throughout the pages of Scripture your faithfulness to be that God for your people, especially the people of Israel, and in the unique way you dwelt among them in the temple. We give thanks to you that you dwell among us chiefly through your word, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgiveness, life, and salvation. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit as we engage your Holy Word this day, that we may be equipped to live in love toward you and service toward each other. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. I would encourage our listeners, as we uh, look at God's Word today, to look up a picture, if you can find one, of Solomon's Temple. In the Lutheran Study Bible, it's on page 541, to get a perspective of how this looks. If you're anything like me, I'm a more visual person. I cannot tell what on a blueprint what is going on whatsoever, but if I see the actual building, I understand. So I encourage you to find a picture of Solomon's Temple, which would be from 960 to about 587 BC, and get to, just to see the layout as we go through the building of this temple. And Pastor Roosh, as we look at um, chapter 6, there's a context in everywhere in in, in the scriptures. There's a context. Anything you want to highlight in the first five chapters that will help us out this morning? Well, what I'd like to do is just, if if I could, I'd just like to share kind of some of the old thoughts I've had as I've, I think maybe especially over the pandemic of all things, Mm. um, 
kind of tried to recast the thoughts I had about the Old Testament as a whole. And obviously we're in the midst of this Old Testament narrative. We're now in the, the reign of the third of the kings of Israel. And I'm not, I'm not counting Saul's son, Ishbosheth, who was you know, a type of king for a while. But you had Saul and then David and now Solomon. And I'm going to be honest, you know, I'm a pastor. It's my job to uh, proclaim the scriptures. Uh, and I love God's holy word. But I confess to having a little bit of a difficult relationship with the Old Testament. And the reason for that being is going through seminary and learning the original languages. Mm. I do not like Hebrew. (laughs) (laughs) And it seemed at seminary that there were two camps of guys, the guys who loved the Greek of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the the Old Testament. Mm. And so um, I definitely carried that with me. into the parish, not that I you never talked about the Old Testament, or not that I, you know, obviously, it's, it's God's holy word, obviously. Uh, so I, I just, I didn't often preach from it. I wasn't a big fan of doing Bible studies from it. We would, but I, but I finally was like, you know what, I've got to really get over this. And, um, <laughs> and the way I've done that, Pastor, is to, is to remind our congregation and remind myself in the study of God's word, that the story of Israel is our story. Ah, yeah. And I think we very easily forget that, even in the way we talk about it. For example, we often talk about the church as the new Israel. And I don't think that's quite appropriate to say we're the new Israel, but rather to say, no, we the church are Israel. And that's the way that Jesus himself talks when he talks in uh, John 15 about branches that are cut from the vine and others that are grafted in. It's the way Paul talks in Galatians when he talks about us being um, sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. We've been brought in through adoption into this family of God, into his chosen people. So I think it's really important for us to reclaim the Old Testament as our story. It's the story of God's people, and God's people does not begin on Pentecost, but it goes obviously all the way back to the very beginning when he created man and woman in his image, and then out of the peoples of the earth selected Israel to be his chosen people. We're that people. So to help me overcome my um, my uh, uh, challenges with the Old Testament uh, for the past, well, since the first Sunday in Advent, I've committed myself this year to preaching each Sunday on the Old Testament reading for that Sunday. And uh, we use the one-year lectionary in our congregation, so uh, it, it helps you know, instead of preaching the same gospel uh, pericope every year, a uh, little bit of variety to look at the gospel through the lens of that Old Testament reading. So just a little something I thought I'd throw in as we tackle First Kings 6 today. That is very helpful because I think many Many of us, and I have to admit, I didn't really like Hebrew either. <laughs> but that's another. That's right. another. We could have a, a what do you call it, a, an anonymous group at some point, and just gather, and, you know, <laughs> talk about our frustrations with Hebrew. But anyways, it it is something that we, if we do think about the Old Testament, we think about think about the simple stories. You know, the the Moses. Uh, you know, he's that he crosses the Red Sea, or we think about Adam and Eve, or we think about Jacob, or you know, Joseph. I mean, you just kind of go through the simple stories, but to get a get, to get a handle on the whole history is a daunting task. That's why 
for us, we've been blessed to have Walter Meyer on, who's just made his whole career to look at this history and to understand it in the Hebrew, which he likes evidently, and and to look at everything <laughs> that comes together. It is a daunting task for us to be able to uh, to tackle. And and I love your um, honesty because um, I think a lot of us are feeling the same way. And the the beauty of it is once you're able to see it all in the context of Jesus, that this all points us to Christ, it opens up new opportunities for us to study it and to give thanks. So yeah, let's go slowly. Let's take our time and let's get the basics down. I think that's, uh, I think, well, I think that's what you're telling us because that's exactly what we're going to do today. So any last thoughts? And, and I would just add to uh, a lot of us knowing um, our story, our history. Mm. Uh, I love genealogy, studying my family roots, my ancestors, learning about them, where they're from, how they they came to the United States, all that sort of information. And the, the scriptures are no different. We are, this is our family. Uh, this is uh, our family of faith. This is our uh, history, our family history. And the, the, the thread that runs through all of it is God's love in Jesus Christ, foretold by the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, and him still reigning and working among us today. Amen. So let's start. Let's start digging into this story that is not only God's story in the Bible, but also our story and our family with our Lord Jesus. So, a reminder to our listeners: we'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the, of the Holy Scriptures, and we're going to start First Kings chapter six, just verse one. In the four hundred and eightieth year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. In the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So, uh, 480 years is a long time. <laughs> you think about, you take 480 years from 2021 and you minus that. Well, that's well before America was founded, at least as a nation. Um, any thoughts on such simple words. This is his fourth year. Any thoughts on, like you said, genealogy, time, history, as we hear in this first verse? So I think specifically this reference to this is how long it's been since they came out of the land of Egypt. So the author of First Kings is, is connecting what's happening here with the building of the temple to really the beginning of Israel's salvation history. Uh, their great uh, salvific event had been their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt, being baptized uh, when being brought through the Red Sea, being carried through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. And I think it's, it's important to probably connect here that it was in that time when they had just been brought out of Egypt that the Lord had made his promise that they would be his people and he would dwell among them. And connected with that was the construction of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. So really this whole system of worship that's going to now take on sort of this more permanent uh, existence in the temple, replacing the tabernacle, finds its beginning 480 years earlier in the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And it's not that um, that the people, you know, that a whole lot is going to change in terms of the way worship will be operated, but the structure is going to change. 
Uh, God will continue to do what God does. He will continue to dwell with his people. And that's going to be something that obviously just carries forward, you know, not just with now at the temple, but ultimately in, in Christ who comes and draws such explicit connections between himself and the temple. Right, right. And, and here, um, one, I found it kind of surprising because we can kind of read the Bible and act as if it happened within one month to the next. But already, um, here's Solomon's fourth year as the king, you know, that when you read one through five into six, you kind of assume it's like a three month process. Dad died. I've become, oh, I've come over now. You know, I got all this lumber from, um, from Sidon and from Hiram and, and uh, a year in and we're ready to go, but this is four years. So that helps us give us, give us context of it just takes time. It takes time to do all of this and that the whole Bible is a long time period because if you were to take 480 years from today, that puts us into 1541, right in the heart of the Reformation. And so, <laughs> which is kind of humbling when I read that. So a good, good thing to remind us that this is a long time period, but once again, what brings it all together is God's grace and love to his people. Last thoughts before we move on? Absolutely, and I would also just add in there that um, we know that with the succession from one king to another uh, in the Old Testament, it's rarely smooth. And it was definitely not smooth in the case of David, uh, the kingdom going from him to Solomon, right. uh, even though it was from father to son, just as it was not smooth going from Saul to David. And so things probably don't move at the rapid pace in which we like to have things settled and squared away in our present day. We, I think it's fair to say we are people that lack patience in many regards. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on. We'll read verses 2 through 10. Now, a reminder to our listeners that there's a lot of information, and I do not want to act as if this information is not important, but we also don't want to what what's called allegorize or try to find meaning that just isn't there. At the end of the day, he's giving very explicit, um, not explicit, very detailed um, instructions on how to build this because it is important. So read the words. Don't get too um, wound up on every little detail, and we will continually point back to our Lord. So verses 2 through 10. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made six chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beam should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went upstairs in the middle story and from the middle story to the third. And he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high 
and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Well, a lot of details there of how King Solomon built for the Lord the, the temple. So any details you want to highlight, any thoughts you have? So the first one, we'll just talk for a moment about the size of it. So that unit of measurement, the cubit, is roughly a foot and a half long. So if you want to try to extrapolate these numbers into um, standard measurements that we're familiar with, basically just add 50% to the number. And that's going to be more or less where you're at. Mm -hmm. So 60 cubits long, more or less 90 feet. 20 cubits wide. Looking at 35 feet, or no, 30 feet. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my math was off there. <laughs> and 30 cubits high, 45 feet high. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. I went um, into our own nave yesterday when I was doing some prep for our study and um, pulled out the, the measurement app on my phone. I don't know how accurate it is because I was trying to measure the height of our sanctuary and the, the width and the length and all these things. But it roughly came up that our sanctuary is only a little bit smaller than this. So it probably wasn't the the most majestic, the tallest building ever constructed. And you have to remember, we've already drawn the connection of the Israelites having come out of Egypt. And what kind of structures were they building in Egypt? You know, things that are still wonders to our eyes this day. But I also am reminded of how this sort of structure that's narrow but long and tall creates the effect of it being much, much bigger on the inside than it perhaps would appear on the outside. And maybe, Pastor Finner, you've experienced that in the churches you've been inside, that from the outside, the building might not seem that large, but when you get inside, that effect of a narrow space with the tall ceiling mm. creates this effect of just feeling that things are uh, are well, obviously through word and sacrament they are literally a connection between heaven and earth but they they physically create that effect and I remember just you know as I mentioned from the outset I'm serving the church I grew up in and that building as a child just seemed like the largest place there was and I, I mean, as a child, I remember thinking that it was like comparable to like football stadiums. Mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, and, and yet now in my adulthood from the outside, I'm like, oh, it's not really that big. <laughs> uh, and yet I think the knowledge of what God does in that place, and it also adds to that effect of, of knowing that there is something of eternal importance that takes place that, that adds to um, the splendor and glory of the place. And that's obviously what's happening here in the temple as well. Uh, you know, you're exactly right. There is a, there's a uh, way that many churches are built. And my current congregation here in Sartell definitely lives that way too, because it's very open, very lit. And so when you walk in, it it definitely has a presence. It probably is higher than what like you're saying, 45 feet, which is kind of humbling to think about that the temple itself was shorter than my current congregations, you know, <laughs> layout. Right. Um, and, and that you said that, and I had never done that kind of math to think about is longer, um, not so much higher, but there definitely was a feeling of there's more here. And, you know, part of that is because you kind of have this weird feeling of, we know what's happening here, which is the presence of God, which really 
was true for them as well because it literally was. The presence of God was right there. They knew in that holy place, that's where God is, the most holy place. And so there definitely was that feeling there. Um, but I, yeah, I don't even know how to handle that right now, that the temple might have been shorter than my congregation. Other thoughts you have on on these first 10 verses? Well, and making those comparisons of this structure with our present day church buildings should not in any way suggest that this place was not a place of tremendous beauty and incredible, exquisite care and attention to detail as this chapter especially uh, lays out for us. Um, I, I, I noticed the, and this comes back to chapter five as well, where Solomon obtains the cedar, which is going to be used. Mm-hmm. And having grown up up here in the North Woods, where we have just cedar trees among lots of other evergreen trees, cedar is known for being this, um, this wood with such a beautiful aroma to it. I remember my, um, my grandfather who had also been pastor at the church where I'm currently serving that when I was a child in his home, he had this large cedar chest and I loved opening it up and him and my grandma, they stored like blankets in it. And he would open up this chest. It was just this beautiful smell of the cedar that would come out of it that you don't find with, with other woods. Mm. And we do know, especially with what's taking place in the temple, how important aroma is to the Lord. The smells of the burnt offerings that go up before his face, uh, the, the incense that the priests offer with their morning and evening prayers. Now, we don't want to make too much of the cedar because what Solomon is going to do is he's going to cover all of it with gold. So I don't know how much of it could actually be be smelled, but um, um, but certainly there is this great sense of care and precision. And I think for many of us, it might strike us as a little bit odd because of how we as Christians today are kind of turned off by the idea of pouring so much richness and elaborate design and so much, let's be honest, money. Mm-hmm. into the adornment of the places where we worship, where things are so sterile and white and blank and and empty. And that is certainly not the case in the temple. And that's going to be very helpful as we look to the other side of our break, as we hear the Lord start to speak to Solomon, for us to get that vision that this was not just a building put together to make sure they saved a few bucks. No, this was this was a holy of holies. This was a holy place God would be. And so they made sure that maybe it wasn't huge, but it definitely pointed people that when you gathered here, you knew this was a holy and sacred place. But we need to take our break right now. We'll be, we are studying 1 Kings chapter 6 with Pastor Matthew. Arush. We'll be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org 
And welcome back. We are studying First Kings with Pastor Matthew Roosh. And we've gone through the first 10 verses, and we've reflected on the size of the temple. We've reflected on what's happening in the temple. And now we continue to move forward to see the intricate detail that the Lord gives to build this most holy of places, which really showed them, I mean, this was if you look at this in uh, for Solomon, this was his calling. You know, in Second Samuel seven, it talks about the son will be the one to build my house, um, and and th- and that's important too because it's very crystal clear. We talked about this yesterday with Pastor John Lekomsky, the clear calling that God had given to Solomon. So now it was coming to fruition. Much like if you do a, a building project, you do that <laughs> that first digging or what you call it, groundbreaking ceremony, sometimes more impressive than others. And it just reminds that people were ready, they were excited, and here it was. Finally, they're able to do the work. Any last thoughts before we get to the next verses, Pastor? Just to once again emphasize for us how important it is that Israel knows they have a God who's not a far-off God, but all throughout the Old Testament, God establishes himself as the one who visits his people, Mm. uh, listens to his people, sees his people, hears his people, and even fights for his people. So this connection between the understanding that Israel has been chosen by the Lord and he has made himself present and engaged with them runs all throughout the Old Testament and especially here now as the temple is being established as their place of worship. That is that is incredibly insightful because it reminds us that God is a God that tells people this is where I'm going to be. And and that goes to our understanding of the word, of the sacraments. Um, we don't have to wonder. I wonder where God's going to speak to me because we know. And this is exactly what he does with the temple. I'm going to be there. <laughs> and he promises to be there. Obviously, he's everywhere. But also, he says, this is where I will be, and you will not doubt ever if I am there. So, yeah, let's, let's move on as he comes and speaks to Solomon, verses 11 through 13. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So uh, the Lord gives a promise to them. And what's that promise? So that promise, and this is so important, is that his presence with Israel, his dwelling among Israel, is connected with his word. Mm. He reminds Solomon and the people of Israel that they are to walk in his statutes, obey his rules, and keep his commandments and walk with them. Then he says, I will establish my word with you. Now, we tend to think of this as, well, they need to follow all these regulations and keep all the laws. It's all about obedience. And yes, that's part of it. This idea that they walk in his statutes, that they keep his commandments, his word, is that they hold and regard his word to them as the chief thing, because it's in that word 
that he is present among them. So I just want, if I could, Pastor Finner, and I just want to draw in an observation we made at a, at a Bible study we're doing here at our Redeemer and Kingsford. Is that okay if I do Please that for do. a second? Please do. Okay, so we are studying the book of Acts at our Thursday morning Bible study. And this is not me trying to get us into the New Testament. I promise we'll get back to first things. <laughs> um, no, we've been studying the book of Acts, and one of the reasons we started uh, studying that was uh, the connection of uh, the early church, the church growing in the face of persecution and difficulty and the continued work of Jesus Christ in a world that was so hostile to Christianity. And we want to explore parallels between that world and our world today. And we were studying Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is giving his sermon to uh, the religious leaders. And he says to them, as he's going through the history of, of Israel and the history of their people, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hand. Mm. I knew he'd said that, but I heard that again. I was like, What? What are you talking about? Isn't that the whole point of the, the tabernacle and the temple and that is that God dwells in the temple? And then, and then Stephen quotes Isaiah 56. So here we go, back in the Old Testament. Yeah. Says, mm-hmm. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So what we must remember here as the temple is being constructed, yes, Israel understands that the Lord dwells among them in the temple, that's because of the word. The minute that Israel departs from the word of the Lord, or for that matter, the, the moment the Israel of our day, Israel today, the church departs from the word of the Lord, we lose his gracious presence among us because that is where he locates himself for us. I think that is what uh, Solomon is being reminded of. I think Solomon, a word Solomon's going to need to be reminded of uh, throughout his life, and that the kings that come after him and the people after him, they will need this reminder that the Lord dwells in the Word. And it's that Word, though there will be rocky, rocky periods in Israel's history, that Word will never depart from them. There will always be, whether it's a prophet, to bring that word back to them, to fill them with hope when they're in exile, to fill them with, with peace after Jerusalem's been destroyed. And ultimately, the word takes on human flesh and comes in Jesus Christ himself. That is, that, that's incredibly helpful to know of the obedience that you hear in these words, which are, like you said, we don't deny that, but the idea of the, the reality, the truth that his presence is connected to his word it's yes, it is about building a building that will point people to the Lord. And that's what we want our own churches to have. But if the church is just a museum and the word is not being preached there, then it ceases to be the church. It ceases to be Israel, as you said so well. It ceases to be have any purpose because the purpose is always connected to the word. And if you go to some very huge, specifically Catholic churches that you'll see, like, for example, the um, the cathedral in New Orleans of St. Louis, that you walk around and all of those images, 
besides some of the saints that kind of, you know, are you sure how that connects? But all these images point us to the word of God, um, which is beautiful. But if they don't have any worship services that point to the word of God, it is simply a museum of art as opposed to a church. And that, that is very helpful. That where is his presence? Where his word is, which he promises to be with his people today. Um, any last thoughts before we move on to, we're going to, we're going to read a lot of verses here in a row. So I want to make sure we're on the same page once we tackle these. Well, that sounds great. I just, I, I wanted to add in here. There was this, this sentiment that I heard expressed by so many people after our churches in so many places had to close at the start of the pandemic. And the line was the church was never a building. Right. And I kind of wrinkled up my nose at that. I know what people were trying to say because, and as you said, if the building doesn't have the proclamation of the word, um, then then the building is of is of no value. But that being said, as the Lord is going to do with this building, the temple, and as He continues to do with our churches today, where that word is in that place, where that word is being proclaimed, where the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation in Jesus Christ are being given in the word, well, then the Lord is definitely in the building and the church is wherever our Lord Jesus is found and wherever we're uh, the sheep listening to the voice of our shepherd. Amen. So let's move on. We will, we will read. So saddle up, everybody. We're going to read verses 14 through 36, 14 through 36, as we hear more of the details. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Well, that was easy. <laughs> I didn't notice that. It was so easy. Oh, my goodness. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we'll come back here. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within an inner sanctuary as the most high holy place. The house that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold, and he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. And it was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits, both cherubim with the same measure in the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits. And so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out that a wing of one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. 
Around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers with the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and the palm trees. So also he made the entrance to the nave doorpost of olive wood, in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding, the two leaves of the other door was folding. And then he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and the one course of cedar beams. All right, I'm going to take a few extra breaths here, Pastor. What what parts <laughs> of, this, of these passages stuck out to you? Of gold. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> there is a lot of gold in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I can't help as, as a reader of the Bible to draw connections between the description of how the, the temple is built and the language that St. John uses in his visions in Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Um, where you have presence of, of, of gold, where you have presence of, of angels, where you have um, um, just, um, and you have these measurements too. I mean, you compare this to uh, Revelation chapter 21 when it describes the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all coming down out of heaven like a bride uh, prepared for her bridegroom. And the dwelling place of God is with man. And, of course, in that Jerusalem, there is no temple. Because the temple is the Lord God Almighty in the land, Revelation 21, 22. I think that helps us to see what we're supposed to see here, this description of the, the temple, the inner sanctuary. This is the place where heaven and earth come together for the Israel of the Old Testament. This is the place where they know the God who who cannot be contained just in, in houses built with hands, but where the God who sits enthroned on heaven places his feet upon the earth as his footstool. He does it right here in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of the temple, where he has promised to dwell with them, where the Ark of the Covenant sits, that Ark, which the, the pillar of cloud rested upon the mercy seat there in the tabernacle in the day of Moses. And there's this continuity that, you know, going back to first Kings six uh, verse one, when we connected this all with the Exodus, mm. God dwelling in the tabernacle with the, the Israelites after they'd been brought out of Egypt, God continuing to dwell in the, in the temple now with, Israel under the reign of Solomon, God dwelling with us in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And of course, God dwelling with us for all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. And, you know, I guess I should probably even draw another connection. God dwelling with his creation all the way in the beginning when he dwelt with Adam and Eve 
and walked with them in the garden, and yet sin caused them to hide themselves from him. All of this is now gradually being restored and all culminates in the place where there is no temple in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, where we live in the joy and glory of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. That is, it's a, it's a great overview of, because like you said so well at the beginning, when we read these verses, it's not an isolated event. It all comes together with our understanding of God's love for his people which we see made manifest in Christ. But also it, it comes to fruition um, when the final resurrection occurs, like you said with Revelation 21. So in many ways, when it talks about gold, and if you read Revelation 21, the new heaven, new earth, you have all this imagery of all these um, different fine stones and pearls and everything to remind us that as those are more beautiful than anything in this world, that is what heaven will be like. You just be full of it. And he does that with this is he takes everything that he builds in there and he covers it with gold, not only to show this is a sacred space, but this gives us a glimpse of what eternity will be like with the Lord. Any, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. And, and the thing that now what John will emphasize in revelation, of course, is, He'll make these connections between the New Jerusalem and the, the, the measurements of it. Uh, um, I don't have it open in front of me, and I don't want to flip through my pages of my Bible right now. Yep. They make these connections with the, the names of the tribes of, of Israel. Um, mm-hmm. Are those on the gates, or are they on the, the, the foundation? You know, the, the names of the apostles. In other words, you know, the, the measurements of it, the uh, right. 144,000. You know, that yep. number 12 being the church. And that God is present where the people are gathered in his presence. And that's heaven. And you do have the beauty and the adornment of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the beauty and the adornment of the Old Testament to the the Temple of Solomon. But all of these things are there because they highlight this glorious reality that the people of God, his church, his Israel are there where he is found for them in love and grace and compassion and mercy poured out because of his nature toward them, ultimately fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, he uses language that we will use still today. He uses the word sanctuary. He uses the word, I believe, nave, if I remember reading this correctly. <laughs> he doesn't use the word fellowship yep. hall. There's no fellowship yep. hall talk here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but he does use words that we will use today when we describe our churches. Do you have any thoughts on how that, How okay, so what they did in the temple, most holy place, sanctuary, nave, how does that connect to what we have in our churches today? Well, we use a lot of these same terms. Now, it, it's kind of, common for us the term sanctuary we often just kind of use in general to refer to the big worship space mm. right? But, right but traditionally on that word sanctuary you can hear it obviously in in um i don't have the hebrew word in front of me but in the word sanctuary you might think of the sanctus mm-hmm. right uh the latin word for the the holy 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 that we sing in the divine service so the sanctuary is the holy Place. And the inner sanctuary is the most holy place. The way this is all set up, and if you want to, as a Bible student, get some of the background on this, 
I invite you to read the second half of the book of Exodus, where the Lord is establishing the worship of the tabernacle. And you have these, these sort of degrees of separation from the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and now the, the temple. Mm. So the closer you are to the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant inside the most holy place, that's the, that's the holiest place there is. Well, as obviously evidenced by the name, the most holy place. Mm. But then it becomes, yeah, there are, there's, as you move outside to the, the nave, we can talk about that term in a second here. Um, the farther you get away, the less, the less holiness you're in the presence of. So there's an understanding that the closer you get, the holier the place becomes. And so traditionally in, in, in church architecture, the sanctuary was basically the area right around the altar. Mm-hmm. Because that was the place where God was present for his people, God is still present for his people, in what's given from the altar. And you would even have churches where the scriptures would also be read from the horns of the altar. Mm. The word and the sacrament would issue forth from that altar, and therefore it was the most holy place in a church, because that's where God's word issued forth from. Now that term nave, uh, I would invite people to think of the term uh, navel, not belly button, but like navy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That is, the idea there is a ship. Uh, think the ark that the people of God gather now in the church. Now, the, the people of Israel would not have gathered in the nave of the temple. That would have been limited to the priest. But we gather in the nave of the church, and as God kept Noah's family safe in the ark, so he baptizes us through the flood waters of holy baptism and keeps us safe in the ark of the church. So the nave for us is where the people of God gather in that space for the pews off or your chairs, depending on how your church is laid out. And see, that's, that's something important because there's traditions that we have in our congregations. For example, I was sitting with one of my members at my first congregation. I served near Milwaukee for four years named Marv Tudorberg. And Marv talked about when he was a kid that he grew up in Missouri, Senate Lutheran, that he would be in church and there was one time he and a few buddies tried to go to the front of church, like after church was over and all this, and they kind of ran up towards the altar and all this. And, and the pastor came in and said, you are not to be in this area. And so they run off and they're scared and all this good stuff. And, and, and his emphasis was like, oh, man, there's, there was no chance for us to be up there. That was only for the pastor and for others. Now, that might seem kind of like um, a little bit legalistic, but it did emphasize a point that that area is for when people are receiving and giving the gifts of Christ, that this is the quote, the most holy place, not in the same way as the old Testament, but definitely shows where do we know the presence of God to be? You put on there the, the, the body and blood of Christ. Often you'll have a baptism very close to that. Maybe not right next to it, right next to it, but very close to it. That's where the word is proclaimed. And when people usually walk up ushers, um, even altar committee, altar guild folks, they usually will bow before they enter that presence. And so those are some traditions that I've seen. Have you seen traditions that kind of represent that same respect that we speak about in the temple? Uh, sure. So, um, uh, for example, our altar guild, our, our elders, uh, myself, when we when we enter the, the area 
when we leave the nave and go in up towards the altar, we call that area the chancel. Uh, it's a custom in our church that we will we will bow, we will reverence the, the altar, just recognizing that this is a place that's reserved for a special purpose. And, and again, you're going back to the example you pulled of that person terrified by their pastor. <laughs> oh, this space is only for special people. No, but it is for a special purpose. Purpose, purpose yeah. and that's really the epitome of the word holy. Uh, we tend to think of holiness as well. It's pure, it's sinless, it's undefiled. It's but ultimately to be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be put aside for a special purpose. You look at the places we normally use the word holy, in, even as Lutherans today, we'll talk about holy Bible, holy baptism, holy communion. Now I want you to think of each of those three words: Bible, baptism, and communion. All three of those words don't really refer to anything out of the ordinary. The word Bible comes from a Greek word that means book. The word baptize, baptism, means to wash. Mm. Communion means to share in something together. So, you know, I can wash my hands uh, before I cook dinner, and that would effectively be a baptism. I could go with my kids to a baseball game if, you know, they're allowing it at, you know, at, the, at the present time. <laughs> we would be sharing in that together. It would be a communion. Right. I could read a good novel that I pick up from the store or order on Amazon, and that would be literally a Bible. Mm-hmm. But the things that are holy are different. They're, they serve a different purpose. And so the temple is about holy things, the holy God who makes things holy and invites people into his presence, ultimately all of us in Christ into his new Jerusalem where we are all made holy, set apart as a different sort of people where we will live with him for eternity. I would encourage our listeners to look at a book that I've read um, that's called Heaven on Earth by Dr. Art Just from Fort Wayne. And the title of it is Heaven on Earth. And he connects what was in the temple to our current day of worship. And I think you you represented this so well, the holy book, the holy baptism, holy communion, that what makes it set apart has to do with the word, what it has to do with pointing us to Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And he really breaks it down. Of course, he always does when it looks at um, how we worship and how we, uh, how, we, how we gather as God's people. And I would say that for us as a church right now, we are able to capture a little bit more of that in our current um, time. Because, for example, when our church came back to worshiping, because we spent about four months without worshiping together, then when we did, it basically was, we're coming here to worship, and then we leave. There was no cookies afterwards, which I'm not against it, by no means. There's no coffee, and it doesn't matter to me, I don't drink coffee. But, you know, there was none of those extra things. What did people come to receive? The holy things. And I'm not saying that's what we need to only do, um, as you said very well, that we, we serve our neighbors. Um, we have other activities to make sure that people are cared for. But also, it gives us a glimpse, I think, of why we have the temple, why we have the worship space, is to be in the holy things. You know, I want to do this, Pastor. I want to read verses 37, 38 and have your last thoughts, because we're almost out of time. So I'll read the rest, and then let's get our last thoughts. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Buell, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was, he was seven years in building it. So 
this would be the time of the ribbon cutting. As you look at this whole chapter, what are the main points that the Lord is pointing us to today? Well, I think obviously his continued gracious presence among Israel, but also going back to verses 11 through 13, connecting that presence to the word, to them listening to his word, his decrees, his commands, holding that word, regarding that word as different from all other words, as holy in and of itself. And by that word, he will be with them. And of course, when Israel departs from the word, they will be departing from the Lord himself. They lose his gracious presence among them. God continues to come forth with that word in the the ultimate temple, who is Jesus Christ himself, who repeatedly draws the connection between himself and the presence of God with his people. In John chapter 2, Jesus uh, told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the, and the, they, they, they scoff at him, and they're... they're, they're uh, scandalized by his statement, but John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. It's in Jesus Christ where God dwells among us. He is the word made flesh, the word who dwells among us, tabernacles among us. I guess we could also say temple among us. He's our temple. And where that word is, we enter into the presence of the holy God just as the, the high priest entered into the inner sanctuary of the temple on the day of atonement as he entered into the presence of the Lord Yahweh. We do the same every time we come where Jesus is for us in word and sacrament. And that's God's way of working, as we've already talked about, not just in Solomon's day, not just in our present day, but for all eternity as well. Pastor Matthew Roosh from Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Kingsford, Michigan, helping us to be strengthened by God's Word. Pastor Roosh, thank you for being our guest. It's been my absolute privilege, Pastor Penner. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Saints of our Lord, the temple is being built for God's people to gather. And we do the same as we gather around the gifts of our Lord, Jesus' body, the temple, who gives us the gift of salvation for you. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And may he keep you safe in the palm of his hands.